This morning, I just really want to um, share on um, Jesus, the one thing. And, uh, you know, I just want to start by, um, have we got that slide up on the screen there? There we go. I want to start by asking the question, when you think about Jesus, what comes to mind? What are the pictures that most often come to mind? Like if you Google Jesus, what would come up? Long, wavy hair, nice beard, Nick. We've got Jesus in the room with us. Oh my goodness. Come on. (laughs) So good. Or little baby Jesus, you know, baby in the manger, Jesus meek and mild, you know, these kind of pictures, right? Jesus on the cross. And uh, I thought this one was quite humorous, you know, Hollywood Jesus, (laughs) how we'd all like him to look. But, uh, you know, not often do we look at Jesus through the, I mean, mean, sometimes we do, but most often that's the picture that comes to mind is, is that Jesus there, you know, the human Jesus, the humanity of of Christ, which is amazing. And I think we definitely need to focus on that. That's awesome. Like how humble he was to come in human flesh and to be born as a baby is just ridiculous. Like seriously, the humility of God. But um, I wanted to go a little bit deeper into like the, the God man, Jesus, you know, the Jesus of revelation, the one with burning eyes of fire. Cause you know, one of, one of the main titles that Jesus used for himself while he was on earth was uh, this title, the son of man. And, uh, and I used to get confused by that. Like, why does he call himself the son of man? It appears 81 times just in the, in the gospels in the four gospels. So Jesus, he constantly says the son of man, the son of man. And I was like, Jesus, if, if you, you know, why, why don't you just be clear with people that, hey, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you guys have been waiting for. But he was actually, he was so aware that if he actually said that out loud, he would probably there and then be killed on the spot because of Jewish law. It would be counted as blasphemy and they would call him a heretic. And so instead he, he referred to himself as the son of man. And this, this actually comes from, if you've got your Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Daniel 7 with me. I'm going to read verse 13 and 14. And it says this. So Daniel, just to give you context, he's having this incredibly terrifying vision in the night and a dream about the Antichrist essentially rising up and taking over the globe, right? So just a casual dream. And, uh, and then he says this. He says in verse 13, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man, hear that, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So here we go, the Son of Man, this picture of Jesus coming in the clouds. Uh, you know, this, this is what he was referring to. So in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus healed the paralytic man, right? And he turns to the Pharisees and he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Can you understand why they wanted to kill him? He's essentially saying, hey guys, you know that guy in Daniel? You're looking at him. You know that guy who's coming in the clouds of heaven and glory? I'm that guy. I'm the Daniel 7 Son of Man. And again and again and again, he said it. And again and again and again, they get frustrated and wanted to to take him out and kill him. Now, I don't know about you guys. I want to know the man Jesus. That's my son. He's cheering me on. Yeah, go dad. I want to know the man Jesus, but I also want to know the son of man, Jesus. And if we read Revelation 1, 12 to 17, it says this. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, 
I saw, so, so to give you context, this is John's vision. This is at the end of the book. So Daniel, at the, kind of in the middle of the book. And now we're at the end of the book, Revelation, where, where John, who wrote Revelation, he's seeing Jesus. He says, I turned to see who was speaking to me, and I saw seven golden lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was one like a son of man. Hear that again. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like wool. Oh, sorry, were like fire. His eyes like wool, that's pretty red. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Who's ever tried looking at the sun for more than two seconds? How did that go for you? (laughs) My goodness. And he says this at the end of verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Now, when you think about the weight of this experience for John, right? He'd walked with Jesus. He'd walked with the man Jesus on earth. Like daily, every day for three years, they hung out together. He ate, ate with them. Uh, you know, he saw him in the, in the intimate day-to-day uh, routine of life in the mundane. And now suddenly in Revelation, he's having this, this vision of Jesus as the Son of Man, as God. And, and here is his, uh, his reaction to this. When I saw him, I felt as though dead. D-E-A-D, dead. Like, seriously, he was freaking out, man. He's like, I'm not going to make it out of this experience. I'm done for. I'm toast. And then we go to Isaiah. Isaiah had a similar experience, right? Uh, you know, there are many encounters like this. But in Isaiah's encounter, in Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 5, he says this. In that year, I, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, these crazy angelic creatures, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with with smoke. And he says at the end of this, he goes, Woe to me, I am ruined. Like in his mind, he's going, like John, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. I'm not coming out of this experience. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord. You know, we're asking for the glory of God to come. Are we ready for that? Like, come on, bring it on, Jesus. You know, I want to see, I love what he says. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm undone by this encounter. And I want to see a generation rise. I want to see a people in the church rise who are ruined for anything else, for any lesser love than all of Him. And, you know, I, I believe that there is a generation rising who are hungering for that, who are seeking that, that man with eyes like fire, that man with face like, like the sun. You know, I think like, what if our first reaction, when it comes to people, seeing people free, seeing people walk in the fullness of what God's created them to be? You know, we can throw counseling at them, but one encounter with Jesus can do more than 10 years of counseling could ever, ever do. And I'm not knocking counseling at all. I believe there's a time and there's a place for that, and there is a ministry calling for that, 100%. 
But what if before throwing books at people and saying, read this, or go hear that preacher, or go to this service, or, you know, our first reaction, our first reaction, all of that is good, but our first reaction is get into the presence. And if you don't know how, I'll go with you. I'll take you on that journey. We'll go together. You know, I believe that there is a generation, what if we could live so addicted to his presence that even the smell of pornography, even the smell of alcohol addiction, the smell of drug addiction or lying or cheating or stealing was so unattractive because we have seen him in his glory to the point where we're ruined for any lesser love. Doesn't that sound like a church you want to be a part of? A, a, a movement of people that you want to be a part of? Gone are the days of legalism where it's, you stop doing this. You, you must not do this. You must not do this. But rather we take people to the place of his presence and they go, oh my goodness, why would I do that? Why would I go down that old track again? Why would I go back into that old way of living? I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. And I can't go back. I believe that there is a generation that are rising up with this kind of heartbeat, with this kind of cry. Is that good? Yeah. Come on. And I believe that this is what the fear of the Lord is. You know, we, we, we hear this, uh, this, this, uh, this word come up often in, in Scripture, but I, I believe there is a big misunderstanding about what, what is the fear of the Lord. You know, in Proverbs 19, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 112, 1. How joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying His commands. Psalm 33, 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. I believe that the fear of the Lord is simply this. It is seeing the Lord rightly. Seeing Him through these lenses. Seeing Him in His glory. Like Isaiah, how could he ever come back and just like keep doing what he you know, was doing before living that old way of life. He'd seen the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. His heart was completely gripped. My goodness. I've got to give everything to him. You know, I love, I love the story of Paul. Once Saul, you know, this Pharisee who, who uh, out of his religious zeal, killed Christians, you know, persecuted the church because he thought he was doing the right thing. In his mind, he was standing for his, you know, his faith. Uh, and, and the law and the Torah. But he has this encounter with Jesus on the road to, uh, to, to, was it to Damascus or Emmaus. And, uh, and he's turned completely 180 degrees around the other way and goes full radical for Jesus. But I love what he says in, in Philippians 3, 5 to 11. If you've got your Bible, you can go there with me. But he says, you know, he goes through and he starts listing off all his achievements, all the glory that he used to live from. And he says this, he says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees, who were, you know, the religious leaders of Israel at the time, who demanded the strictest obedience to the law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without without fault. He was the teacher's pet. He was the, the, uh, you know the front for uh, the Pharisee uh, committee. He was the dude who was, he was the, you know, top dog. And he says, I once thought all of these things were valuable, but now, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless. Hear that word, worthless. In other versions it says, everything else I consider is manure. To be so blunt, crap. Can I say that in church? I consider it as the lowest 
lowest thing, all those things that I used to think were privileged positions were the best, you know, the things that people would look to in our, in our generation to attain toward. I want to be prime minister. I want to be, you know, CEO of a business. I want to have a million dollar income a year. I want to have this and that and drive the fences. You know, those things that we would look to. He goes, all of that. It's dung. It's manure to me. I, I would never go back. And I'm not knocking any of that if God's called you to that. But this is Paul's experience. He says, for his sake. Oh, sorry, yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I love that. And then he goes on in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him. Who, puts, who would put their hand up for that? I want to suffer with him. I want to share in his death so that one way or another, I will experience resurrection from the dead. He's essentially saying, no matter what, I'm following him. Whether you kill me or you keep me alive, or you torture me or not, I'm going to follow him and nothing is going to stop me. Why? Because I've tasted and I've seen. I've seen the glory of the Lord. There's no other life for me. There's no other way. He is the only way. And he is the way that I'm following. I just find that so incredible. You know, I heard a story uh, of, of, of uh, it's called the 40 Soldiers. 40 Roman soldiers, and I believe there was a song written about them, but uh, this is a true story. In AD 320, there were 40 soldiers in the Roman army who were forced by law of one of the pagan uh, Romans, Roman leaders at the time to bow down and worship him. These soldiers, being Christian, refused to follow this decree. As a punishment, they were thrown into prison and given some time to reconsider. After some time in chains and much persuasion, they refused to bow down to these idols for the sake of Christ. As a punishment, all 40 of them were forced to march in the middle of the night, in the middle of winter, to a nearby lake, which was completely frozen, to stand in the middle of it and to, to march near to, into the waters until they renounced their faith in Jesus. A Roman guard was set up to prevent them from escaping the water and as temptation, they set up a bathhouse on the edge of the lake he said, if you want to refute Jesus, you can come and you can warm up. After a long time standing in the waters, one of the soldiers eventually gave in to temptation and walked out, only to drop dead on the side of the shore. After a long time standing in the waters, the other 39, oh, sorry, the other 39 soldiers, slowly one by one, began passing away. But they sang this song called 40 Roman Soldiers, a song of worship to the Lord as they stood there in that, that lake. And one of the Roman soldiers on the guard on the side of the lake, he was so moved by what he saw, the faith of these soldiers, that they weren't willing to, to relent for Jesus. And, uh, and he saw one of the, the soldiers who had forfeited his, his place there. And he thought, I'm going to take his place. And he took off all his clothes, walked into the lake, and ended up dying there with the other 40 Roman soldiers. And in the morning, there were 40 dead soldiers in that water. And I just think, like, what? I was so moved hearing that story for the first time. Like, what? Would compel someone to do that. Like when you hear of, the, I mean, persecution today is the worst it's ever been. Like you just have to go on to look at open doors and they've got some amazing resources and some testimonies, but it's the worst ever today. And I just wonder, like, why would someone pay such a high price for the gospel, for Jesus? For something that, you know, was just a religious idea passed on to them from someone else. They'd tasted and they'd seen. Of the glory of the Lord. And I, I heard the story of this woman, Helen Vahani, 
And uh, if it's on there, there you go. Helen Bahani, she, uh, she, she lives in Eritrea, and uh, she was a Christian, believer. Now Eritrea is uh, very hostile toward Christians. Um, strongly majority Muslim population. And uh, one day Helen gets up in front of hundreds of Muslims and begins preaching the gospel. And, uh, and the authorities didn't like this very much. And so they took her and they threw her into prison. And the prison there uh, was, was uh, not like our prisons. It was literally just shipping containers, uh, dark shipping containers. And uh, they, they threw her in and there were no lights in them. And, uh, and she, she um, with what little light she could find, uh, would get bits of paper and start writing scriptures uh, and giving them to other prisoners. And, uh, and they caught on to this, the, the authorities. And so they took her and they threw her into her own cell. And she said it would be uh, in, the, in the middle of the day, because it's Africa, it's East, uh, East Africa. And uh, in the middle of the day, it was scorching hot in these, uh, in these container, uh, shipping containers. But in the middle of the night, it was freezing cold. And so it was just constantly suffering. You know, there were bugs that would bite your skin. It was just horrible. And then they would also, to add to that, they would face beatings on a regular basis from the prison guards. And so Helen, she, she kept getting beaten by these guards and they'd take her out. And one day, uh, it's, she said that they beat her so bad that she felt like, this is it, I'm going to die. Um, and they said to her, Helen, why do we have to keep doing this to you? Why do you keep, you know, enduring the suffering for, for your God? And she looks up at them and she says, you know, you're just doing your job. That's why you're beating me. I'm just doing my job. I'm following him. And that's why I keep going. Incredible. And now, um, so anyway, she, she managed to get uh, freedom and sought asylum and uh, now travels around. Uh, she, she's a worshipper and uh, writing worship music and, and uh, sharing her story. I just think, man, why would someone go through that for something that was just an ideology? passed on from someone else. She had a revelation of the glory, of, of the goodness of God. And I just think of Psalm 27 where David wrote, he, you know, consider King David like king over Israel. One of the, the, the strongest military powers in the world at that time. Wealthiest man in the land. Had it all. And, and he says this, he says the one thing, Psalm 27, 4, the one thing that I ask of the Lord and the thing I seek the most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections or seeking his face, the beauty of his face, and meditating in his temple. That could have had all these other things. One thing. David, what are the things you want? You want that nation over there, you can have it. You want that new wife over there, you can have it. You want those riches, you can have it. He says, no, the one thing I desire the most is to see the Lord. And I think that should be our attitude as believers, eh? One thing. And it's my prayer today that you go out of here. Just, I mean, anything, my hope that you get out of this message is that you go away. Like, this is just like a foretaste of his goodness. I mean, like, out of that worship, like, I just wanted to stay in that place. I'm like, man, like, I want you to go home and, and, and just be so hungry for him. That's my desire. You know, Jesus said, you are salt. What does salt do? Makes you thirsty. You guys should be in your workplaces, wherever you are, in your school, young people. I want to see, you know, people who, who go out and make people thirsty for Jesus. 
You know, like you see those cartoons where someone puts a pie out on the stand, right? Grandma puts a pie out on her windowsill and, and, uh, and the smell goes down the street and someone smells it and they float up to the, to the windowsill. I want to see Christians who are like that, who walk down the street. I mean, Paul even said it. He said, you guys are a fragrance for the Lord. Like everywhere we go, people should walk past us and be like, what's that? What's so different about them? Rather than, what's that? You know? But wow, what is that that's on them? I want that. I want that. And David, I mean, he said this. He said, oh, Lord, my God, you are my God. Psalm 63, 1. He said, earnestly, I search for you. My soul, it thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. In this parched and weary land where there is no water. You know, I think we need to stay thirsty for the Lord. We need to stay hungry for the Lord. Jesus said it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied or they will be filled. We must never stop hungering for the Lord. I love what A.W. Tozer says. You know, A.W. Tozer, an incredible uh, author and, and pastor uh, throughout the years. Some of you might know him. Those of you who don't, incredible. Look him up. But he said this, he says, quite a long quote, so bear with me. He says, God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. Isn't that what his presence does? We come to him, we can only have a little bit, and then we're like, I want more. He says, I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God. You know, we should never get to a place where we're like, yep. I'm good. I'm done. I'm, I'm a, I've arrived. He says, I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray, so that I may know you indeed. I just love that, eh? I could keep reading, but I just really wanted to encourage you with that. I, God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. If we can make that one of our prayers, I want to adopt that into my prayer life. God, make me more hungry. Now, I remember someone said it once. They said, hunger isn't a sign of God's absence, but a sign of God's presence. Sometimes we can think because we're hungry, I'm not a good enough Christian. Oh man, I must have done something wrong because I'm hungry. I'm thirsting for him. No, friend, that's a sign of his presence in your life that he's drawing you. You'd be worried if you weren't. You'd be worried if you were comfortably numb. I think of the, the, the crayfish, you know, you put a live crayfish in water and you slowly heat it up and it's comfortable. It's okay. Oh, nothing's wrong. And, you know, that's how the devil wants us to be. He wants us to be comfortably numb until he cooks God out of our lives, you know? It's a pretty rough analogy, but do you know what I mean? Like, we need to be in a place where we're so conscious. I need to need you more. I want to want you more. I long to long for more of you. I hunger to be more hungry. I thirst to be more thirsty. And if we can be like that in our workplaces, if we can be like that in our schools, if we can be like that in our church, wherever we are, just like salt makes you more thirsty. If we can make people long for Jesus more. Why would anyone want Jesus? A Jesus that's just an idea in your head and not a revelation lived through your heart. You know? 
I, I, my prayer, and if you're in that place, again, just start praying. Start asking. God, make me long for more of you. God, make me so desperately aware. God, make me so in need of you. You know, Jesus said it. He said, blessed are those who are poor, for they shall inherit my kingdom. Blessed are those who are desperately aware of their need for me. <laughs> for they will receive me. Jesus said, I didn't come to heal the righteous, but to heal the sinners. <laughs> he said that the, 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 those who are healthy, they don't need a doctor. Those who, who don't... Fe- and that was his problem with the Pharisees. That's why he was so hard on them. Because they were so unaware. They were like that crayfish. They didn't know that they needed God. They thought they had it all. Oh, well, if we're, just, if we're doing all the right things, we're ticking the box. Oh, yeah, I've gone to, to the, the, the weekly... I've done my weekly sacrifice. I've prayed my weekly prayers. I've done this. I've done that. I don't need, I don't need more. And that was his beef with them. He got, hey, he's like, guys, come on. And that's why I said it. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who are so desperately uh, aware of their need for God. We need to get so desperately aware of our need for God. But, you know, we also need to know, my goodness, we are so loved. Because <laughs> you can't have one without the other. Sometimes we can get stuck in the striving attitude. Oh, I've always got to do more. I've always got to do more. We've got to know, my goodness, you're so loved. I mean, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, however, we, however weak we are, however poor, however little our faith, or however small our grace may be, our names are still written on his heart. Nor shall we lose our share in Jesus' love. Yeah. So Isn't that amazing? Can we just uh, get the band back up? Is that okay? And can we play that last song? My goodness, that was amazing. Is that cool? I just want to really create a platform for Encounter this morning. You know, we're talking on Encounter today. Today, you, let's never, never stop pursuing. Let's never stop seeking after the one thing, like David said. So this morning, I just want to encourage you, if you want to get prayer, come up the front. If, there, if you feel like, my goodness, I've lost that love in my life. I want that hunger. I want to want Him. I want to thirst for Him. I thirst to thirst. I hunger to hunger more. I'm desperate for you, Lord. Then I want to encourage you to come and to receive prayer. And there'll be ones who will come and stand with you and pray over you. But right where you're at, I want to encourage you to just lay your heart bare before God. Because that's where revival starts isn't coming as we are saying Lord I love you can we just stand up right now you too yeah Yeah, God God my God earnestly I seek you My soul longs for you. God, I thirst to thirst for you. I hunger to have a deeper hunger for you. I long to long for more of you. God, we just say that, Lord, this morning. We make that our prayer. You are so worthy of all 
our lives. Of all our devotion, of all of our love. We just worship you this morning, Lord. Can we just lift our voice and start worshiping it?